And we are super psyched to welcome our newest sponsor, Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest best source for premium, new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle, that's West Seattle, or Portland stores. You'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I know because I'm in there a lot. Grab a cup of coffee, swing on in, don't spill your coffee, and check it all out. And now if you use code TOURSTORIES10, you can get 10% off at thunderroadguitars.com. Yes, that's me playing guitar. Hello, big news from our friends over at DistroKid. They now have an app. This app works on iOS and Android, of course, and it's available in the Apple Store and Google Play Stores and all the stores where you buy apps. Go check it out. It's got a lot of cool features. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Awesome. You can withdraw from the app via push notifications. A little dangerous for me, but rad. Anyways, go check it out. It's all at distrokid.com app. And don't forget, you can still get 30% off your DistroKid account by going to distrokid.com VIP slash tour stories. Have a great one. We continue to celebrate our friends and partners over at Isotope, and we got some big news for you. The gold standard of audio repair, RX11, is coming in May. In the meantime, you can buy RX10 now on sale and get RX11 absolutely free when it's released. Tour Story listeners get 10% off by using code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. All at isotope.com. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com. Hello, Tour Story listeners. Thank you for your continued support, and welcome to Season 4. I'd like to take a second to thank our friends and sponsors over at Isotope. Here at Ruinous, Chris and I rely heavily on easy-to-use tools like RX and Ozone for all of our audio repair, mixing, and mastering. Now, Tour Story listeners can get 10% off Isotope plugins or try Music Production Suite Pro for free for 30 days using code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. To get your discount and check out all of their easy-to-use products, go to isotope.com slash ruinous. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com slash ruinous. And use code FRET10. And thank you for listening. Hi, Ari. Joe, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Where are you? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Beautiful, sunny Nashville, Tennessee today. I've been here since about 2004. Did it get hot yet in Nashville? Not yet, but it's warming up. It's in the 70s today. But you know, like here, you never know. Like yesterday, it was high 40s or something. It was cold and gray. Whoa. And then, then it becomes sunny the next day and then, you know, tornadoes and whatever else happens. Yeah, I always hear that from Nashvillians. Yeah. yeah. Laments about the weather. The unpredictability. But And everyone says that, especially, yeah. you know, as much as I travel, it's like, oh, in Missouri, you never know what's going to happen. Oh, in Alaska. <laughs> you, you know, it's like a local giving you directions, which is also a weird idea that I've experienced. But um, You've been everywhere, huh? I have. I've been everywhere, man. Yeah. Yeah. Like the song. Except for Alaska. 
You've never been to Alaska? I've never been to Alaska. Have you? No, I've never been. I've never been to Alaska. I've actually never been up to Seattle or Portland or there. I've never been farther than Northern California, actually. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, northwestern Connecticut, like a very rural part of Connecticut, right Mm -hmm. between uh, New York State and Massachusetts in the northwest corner in a little town called Kent. And then I went to New York when I was a teenager, like a young teenager, and then wound up going there for good when I was about 17 and wound up getting into a school there and then staying there pretty much straight through except for a couple of years that I spent in Oakland, California. And Mm. then um, around 2001, I met my wife in New York when I was tending bar and she was my girlfriend and then we moved down here and she was my wife and two kids (laughs) later, two kids later, it's 2021. What bar? Uh, I worked at a bunch of bars there. I was I attended bar at Coney Island High, mm-hmm. and then I worked at Arlene Grocery in the Butcher Bar, and then the ill-fated Chenet. I worked there for a little bit, and then I stopped bartending. No bartending in Nashville for you? Well, you know, I did. I worked at this. <laughs> I've worked at really good bars. I worked at this bar called the Slow Bar here when I first came down in 2002 before I went back to New York for a minute and then came back down permanently. But I worked at the Slow Bar, which was great. And I also worked at a place called The Basement before it was owned by Mike Grimes, who's the guy who owns The Basement now, and he owns The Basement East, and he owns Slow Bar at the time. Um, it became uh, an extension. Like, he put Grimey's upstairs, which is the the bookstore, music store. And then right. beneath it was The Basement. But I'd been I'd retired from that scene by then. Yeah. How is Nashville feeling these days how's the pandemic feel down there is are the vaccines rolling out yeah i mean i i just got i got my second one my wife got my second one and uh great yeah it's it's going good nashville's you know nashville's been through a lot because we had uh we had the tornado and then we had the bombing and then we had covid so i think Mm -hmm. you know it's it's felt like a you know, it was a rough year in a lot of ways, but that seemed really hard right in a row. So yeah, Nashville's Nashville's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nashville's getting through it just like everywhere else. But you know, it's so it's so isolating. It's not like um, you know, as in New York, you're 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 out so much and there's so much interaction. I have a much more isolated life in Nashville, so I'm not really sure. Like, you know, I'm out wandering around with my dog one way or another, so I kind of see the same. I can't really see what's going on or what's not going on. Right. So yeah. is your last year, uh, have you been pretty quarantined, pretty inside in the last oh, year? Yeah. yeah, we were real serious about it. Yeah. You know, we took it really seriously and we stayed in. And, um, you know, the first part of it, when it all happened, that's when I wrote the book. And so the year was really shaped by that process, like, you know, by design, thank God. Yeah. It was a good time to slow everything down, like start gardening and writing novels. And, and I think that kind of helped me. That helped a lot, like to have a, a, a longer time frame that I'm looking at, not the immediacy of day-to-day life, because that just slowed to a crawl. Well, that's a benefit. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, that's why I did it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I do it because, uh, you know, I thought I was just going to go crazy. You, I, I had no, yeah. where do you go when you have nowhere to go? And I had to create somewhere to go, which is this the world of the book, which is a strange place to retreat to. But <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine. I really, I'm not just saying that. Those aren't just words. I actually can't imagine. Yeah. It was very immersive. This is the first book I've written. So, and you know, I'm a, I'm a writer, like professionally, I write like, you know, like I do business writing and ghost writing and stuff for people. So I'm always writing, but this was a very different experience and it was prolonged over such a period of time, especially between the the writing of it and then the editing of it. Like, you know, you, they start showing up like, 
It's like a yeah. haunt. It's like a haunting a little bit, which I'm, might sound cliche or corny or whatever. But I do remember, like, I walked into my. And there was nobody home, and I, I walked into my bedroom, and Nikki was sitting on the bed, and I was like, "Oh my god, oh my what god. are you doing here?" And then he was gone. <laughs> that's that's. It's wild. weird, and like you start hearing them. It's more like it's. I used to tell people it was like alien abduction because it's like you're in the shower, and the next thing you know, you're beamed into this world, and it just happens suddenly like that. And you turn the water off and it's gone. We're talking with Ari Sertival. And your book, Double Nickels, came out September 2020. Is that right? Yeah. And before we get into the, the book, I understand that you self-published. I kind of want to talk about that experience because I have experienced myself putting out records on uh, small labels and putting out records myself. I imagine it's similar, but um, how was it for you? It was great. You know, it's like the decision to self-publish it. Like when I made that decision, I made it kind of early on in the process. It's not some altruistic thing. I started to look in like what traditional publishing contracts were like, and they're just so ridiculous that I just didn't want to do it. But there was this aspect where I just felt like at this point in my life, I just didn't want to ask anybody's permission anymore. I didn't want to be like, oh, do you like it? Will you like my chat and then, you know, do something with it in three years or whatever? I just wasn't there anymore. And that's what you do when you traditionally publish. You sell the rights to your book and they can essentially do anything with it. You know, they can change the title, they can change passages, they can take stuff out, they can shelve it, they can do whatever they want. And for that, they take between like 90 and 94% of, sometimes it's not even gross. It's sometimes it's the net <laughs> after they, Whoa. you know, after they sell the book. So, um, you know, the money isn't great, but it was more just like, um, I just didn't want to ask anybody to, to what they thought of it. And I was also, I felt it would be kind of disingenuous of me to to pursue that because I knew I was not willing to compromise on anything. I had this vision for what I wanted it to be and I wanted to get as close to that vision as I possibly could. And I didn't want to get involved in any debates or dialogue about like, if they were going to say like, we want to do a different cover, I would have just been, no, I would have fought everything. So that's not fair to go into anything like that. And thankfully, you know, there was no interest whatsoever to spoil, you know, to spoil me, (laughs) you know, this, this elaborate act of Hamlet I'm playing in my head. There was like zero, (laughs) zero interest. But, you know, it's funny because I'd kind of decided to do it. And for some of these reasons we're talking about and other reasons as well. And then uh, somebody I knew uh, read it and really loved it. And they knew somebody at a very, very powerful New York literary agency. And, and the person was like, just let me send it. Let me send it. And I, and I kind of hemmed and hawed. And I don't know if I was like completely like vociferously like, no, don't do it. But I was kind of leaning in that direction. And then they did it anyway. And it just it just owns you like as much as Uh I had this whole ethic and reason for wanting to do it myself and to put it out myself and the kind of book it was and everything else. Like as soon as that factor is introduced, it just lived in my head. Like, Oh, maybe this, this is how I can do it. Like, and it was really unpleasant and I didn't like it. And after worrying and wondering like, should I do this? Should I not do this? What if they think like it's the greatest thing ever? And and they didn't want it. They had no interest whatsoever. (laughs) You know, after it was out and everything. So it was, you know, it was it was the right decision for that reason, too. But at the same time, like, it's really hard when you have that thing in your head and you're so conditioned to think that that's what you should do. And that's the real thing to do um, to traditionally publish, despite all the you know facts and misgivings of why it might not be like once it's a possibility, you know, it really like rented a lot of space in my head. 
it's called double nickels for a lot of reasons, but w- one of them is a reference to double nickels on the dime by the Minutemen, which was their double album from 1984. And it that's a reference to that time in that era. But it, I kind of felt like, you know, things get weird when you're writing a book and I kind of felt like I had invoked them like muses a little bit to guide this process by calling it that, by calling it double nickels. I had somehow invoked the the spirit of, of Deep Boone or Mike Watt, you know, the spirit of how they did things. And it would have felt, really, I mean, it just <laughs> seems like in that context, it's the only thing to do is to put it out yourself. You did, You grew up in the Northeast. It, it takes place in the Northeast. Um, I do have something to say about that. I started the book. And I thought it was on the West Coast, rural Northern California. Yeah. Why? Because that's where I grew up oh, good. As, a latch, as a latchkey kid. Yeah. I think it could be anywhere. It happens to I be. Think so too. It happens to be there, but I, I think it could be uh, anywhere. I think it could be the favelas of Brazil. I, I think the story almost works like a myth in a way that it can really be adapted to any set of circumstances so that you can bring bring yourself to it but yeah i i grew up there in a in a very very small town very rural very isolated very cold beautiful like the berkshires are beautiful it's an incredible lovely place but there's a uh, i always found there to be like a darkness there and so a lot of the stuff in my mind while i was writing it was was set there and then in terms of like how autobiographical it is it's like i think of this there's a quote by ken kesey about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where he says some things are true even if they never happened. And for Double Nickels, I think it's like the reverse, like some things aren't aren't true even if they did. Because when I go through it, and especially like I had an experience when I was going through, like when I was reading it after it was out and everything kind of flipping through it, I was like, oh, that happened. Like, oh, that happened. Like it didn't, Mm. (laughs) almost like I was just realizing that a lot of stuff actually happened. But, you know, the characters are, composites of different people kind of put together so even if stuff is is true and actual like some incidents actually happened when you take them out of context or you put different people together and change time that's a big theme in the book time stopping and time moving in different directions when that stuff happens it's really not true anymore so i feel like it's more like i have a lot in common with some of these characters than it is like oh that's me and that happened to me it's not a memoir it's not autobiographical and like the main events of it did not happen at all um, <laughs> this book, I will say, has an incredible soundtrack, and the record's already spinning, you know, for me when I open the book with that title, yeah. Double Nickels. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine reading it, and again, I'm reading it the second time, and it's just start, it's already humming along. There's three things going on, the visual aspect, the words on the page, and the music, but it's all happening at once for me. Yeah. It's very Thank easy. You. Yeah, it really, truly is. Not all books do that for me. Not all books have soundtracks, but this does, and everything flows together so easily. Yeah. Um, is there a purpose of the music in the book? There is, and it's okay. it's uh, it's almost like the classic use of a Greek chorus, which is to comment on the the sort of larger moral issues of what's going on and to make a statement uh, about the emotional timber of what's happening in the drama. And I actually just read this quote by Nietzsche about Greek choruses, how they're just like the chorus is fundamental to the experience of understanding what's happening. And I I think I do that as well. There's a lot of uh, myth stuff that's happening in the book, which kind of is not necessarily like right up front and center maybe on the first reading i think the first reading's designed to like really just follow this love story and this coming of age story but underneath it there's a lot of myth stuff so it seemed like 
I wanted to use music that way, both because it's like the two main characters in it are, are teenagers and they're kind of outsiders and they like this certain specific kind of music. And that's how, in my experience, like that music was so important to me when I was a kid, especially growing up someplace so isolated. And um, it's how I connected with other people. And it was just a very significant way to get in touch with emotions maybe I didn't really understand or couldn't express otherwise. So it, it plays that role in it, but also it's really a commentary on, on what's happening. So I wanted to use it in that classical sense, but also like to play with those myths as well. So like the replacements are certainly a myth, you know, and the Minutemen are a myth. And there are these myths that we sort of in, internalize and embody as, as we're growing up, or at least I did. You know, the replacements myth is, is just as significant as the Joseph Campbell stuff and the hero's journey stuff. And I wanted to combine that all. And I wanted to use music in a way that does that. The other thing that music does in it is that it, you know, these are people that have tough lives and, and are living in really hard realities. And there's an aspect of music that I saw, especially working in bars and living in bars and um, being in bars for so long where you see where it's like a, a kind of fantasy that takes hold. And I wanted to contrast the fantasy that people tell themselves through music with the reality of their surroundings. So it's like, yeah, I was thinking about this this morning when I was walking the dog where it's like, it, there's a scene where there's a character that's singing along to, to cowboy song by thin Lizzy. And there's this, you know, that roll me over and spin me around, let me, or turn me around. Let me keep spinning until I hit the ground. And it's a sort of outlaw fantasy of like bar life or, a musician's life or whatever it is. And then, you know, a couple pages later, you see the reality of being rolled over and spun around and hitting the ground. And it's a very different thing. You know, there's another character that has a similar thing with the song, the trooper by iron maiden, which is a really reprehensible fucked up song. It's good, <laughs> good guitar playing, but you know, and that was, that was a song that's, that's absolutely commenting on that character and what's going on there and what that song means and what it means to be the trooper. And, you know, there's war pigs, you know, which is this anti-authoritarian anti-war song. And 10 years later, there's, uh, you know, the trooper from Iron Maiden, which is just about stuffing yourself into the jaws of the war machine. And it, it seemed to really speak to uh, this character who in one way represents this sort of generation of young working class men that just throw themselves into the gears of the society and get chewed up by it and just sort of needlessly sacrifice themselves. So there's references to that. There's a lot of like a lot of different meanings to a lot of different stuff. A song that jumped out oddly is emotional rescue in that disco. Oh, wow. That thump, that scene. I can hear that song with the door closed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because that's how we're <laughs> hearing it. I should I shouldn't tell this part, but it's like uh, after after the book came out, I got a text from one of my brothers, and he said like, "Oh my God, I was just in the Trader Joe's, and they played Emotional Rescue, and I had like a PTSD flashback to growing up." And he was like, "Do you remember that?" And I just screenshot a picture of the book, that chapter in the book, and sent it back to him. He thought it was hysterical. So yeah, that's um, you know that's an Emotional Rescue is an interesting one because a lot of times the songs in my head, at least when I was writing it, are referring to stuff that's not not mentioned like the the part of emotional rescue because the the mother in, in the book is is singing it at one point and 
the the line in it that I, I imagined her singing and you can't use lines for for good reason for copyright reasons like you can't just rip people's lyrics and put them into your book but you become a you write better if you don't anyway so it's kind of a blessing in disguise but um there's that line in emotional rescue uh that you're too deep in you can't get out you're just a poor girl in a rich man's house which is to me emblematic of her and emblematic of this character and the rich man's house is just the oppressive 1980s america and the the razor margins people had to live on then and now i just wanted to weave it through a little bit almost like you know it is in life and i i was really conscious of this there's this great john prine thing about how, like music in the movies where he's like watching a movie and going like hey where's that song coming from <laughs> which, is, which is so great i didn't want to do that i wanted it to be really uh, endemic so a lot of it is like there are songs and there's music in it but as particularly in the case of like tom petty it's an object tom the music tom petty plays a really significant role in the book but it's really the object of the cassette of damn the torpedoes so i wanted it to be actual physical things which is really what music used to be um, right. It's not really so much that anymore, but I wanted to be an actual physical thing that is in the lives of these characters, whether it's a record or, you know, a cassette or a song on the jukebox. I wanted them to be actual things. I didn't want it to just be like slipping in a vibe or anything like that. Right. Part of the, the book was I really wanted to write something for the working class kids and for the rural kids. And especially at that time, there was not this abundance of information. So, you know, you just kind of got what you got and you and you cobbled it together as best you could. So that made something like a, a T-shirt or a record or a tape just incredibly significant and almost right. totemistic like that you, you had. It. And that's what this kid has in the, the book. Like he's got a Ramones T-shirt and he just uh, he says he wears it every day like armor. You know, it's like this this thing that becomes central to his identity it wasn't just like you know i talk to my kids now and it's like you've got everything you've got the universe in your pocket if you want to learn how to do anything you just dial it up and that's not how it was you know i was like i remember i had a blank tape with let it be on one side and tim on the other by the replacement side no idea what they looked like i had no you know none of this stuff so it was like a very you fill a lot of it in with your head yeah, yeah. But my first experience with any physical medium was a cassette I went to Southern California, which is like going to the big city mm -hmm. when I lived in a town of 5,000 people, visit my cousins in Orange County. I hear social distortions, mommy's little monster. I have to get it. So we stuck it in front of a speaker with a boom box and just hit play and record. So I got like a live speaker recording <laughs> and I got home. I didn't have a tape player. I think I had to wait until Christmas. Yeah. And be like, what do you want for Christmas? I want that fucking tape player so I can play this tape. Yeah. My neighbor had a tape player, but I didn't have one. But I had this, you know, I had a tape <laughs> with mommy's little monster written on one side of it. <laughs> The, the effort it takes to get music uh, lends it significance as well. Like there's this part in the book where he's talking about like there's a new record that he wants to get and how he's going to get it. And he's been waiting a long time for it and stuff. That's actually a reference to Please to Meet Me, which came out that summer of 1987 and which is when when the book takes place. And just how is he going to get this? It was it was much more difficult and just sort of uh, like imagining what it sounds like from record reviews and things like that. Yeah. I'd like you to read a passage. All right. I'm actually going to read that passage that we've actually been talking about just now where he's in it. Um, okay. Let me set it up to make it make sense. Okay. Uh, this is the beginning of chapter 12. And uh, what's happened is he, he has met this girl and um, 
he really likes her and he's 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 trying to find a way to see her again and he walks this long distance to where she works at the stop and shop and he brings her a record and he asks her out and she says no and this is him walking back chapter 12 tim walked back asking himself what'd you think what'd you think fucking idiot what'd you think was going to happen and he was mad at himself for feeling so sad like yeah this is what you're sad about he tried to push it back from his mind and slow sang a fast song, soft like a mantra, as he walked. I'm a customer, a customer, a customer. He was in love with the girl who works at the store, but he was just a customer, a customer, a customer. Not true, he thought. No money. And the song made him wish, since he was all the way out there, that he could go to the little record store with the puppets on the walls where the bald guy with long hair sold incense and bootlegs and bongs. But he'd stolen from there a while ago before he made himself change. He stole a Ramon's t-shirt, the black one with the eagle. The guy had been so nice to him too, playing him records, giving him tapes, telling him about music. He took the shirt because he wanted it and because he was trying to be that way then, but he was terrible at it. Not the stealing part, he never got caught, except for the time he really did. But whenever he stole, and especially when he stole that t-shirt, he felt poisoned afterwards. It made him feel like he was confessing to something, like he was telling the world that this is the only way he could get anything. He would only have it if he could steal it. And he'd walk home red-faced and out of breath, and he wouldn't even want to touch whatever he stole, much less own it. And he'd stuff it under his bed or in the back of his closet where he couldn't see it. He did love that shirt, though. He wore it every day those days like armor. But every time he put it on, he thought of stealing it, and he felt a chill inside that sometimes he called embarrassment, and sometimes he called bad luck. He didn't know where he'd get records anymore, and there was a new one he really wanted, too. He'd been waiting a while. They didn't play it on the radio, but he saw a drawing of it in a music magazine. It sounded great. It sounded like it might sound like how he felt. He didn't get to read the whole thing, though, because the guy behind the counter at the milk and shit was one of those Jerry manager guys. Tim had been at the magazine rack at the back. The guy wouldn't have to see him even if he didn't lean way over the counter and look into the big fisheye mirror hanging in the corner of the ceiling like a moon. Tim flipped through the pages and looked in the mirror at the guy looking at him. One of those big lottery posters hung in the window behind him, and every time he leaned over, Tim could see it read, You can't win if you don't play. Tim thought, who cares if he's not bothering anybody reading a magazine no one's ever going to buy? And he couldn't read it even anyway because the guy kept leaning over and staring at him. Tim was waiting for it. The guy shouted, hey, from behind the counter. He said, this isn't a library. Oh, it isn't? Tim said. He put the magazine back in the rack and walked back down the aisle to the door. What are you, a dummy? The guy said. You a smart guy? I'm not anything, Tim said. He pointed at him. You're blocking the if you. He thought maybe the library might get that record someday. Maybe if he asked, they would. But he wished he could go to the record store and hear it now. He bet that's where Kara got that shirt. Where else would she have? And he thought about Kara saying, don't be. I am. It's hard to explain. And he just kept walking. He figured he'd better go see Darcy. He'd been thinking about her since he'd seen her see him talking to Kara. He wanted to tell her he felt bad, but he didn't know if she'd be that sucks, Darcy, or you should, Darcy. When he had first told her about things, 
and she was the only one he'd ever told and heard just hints. She would listen and say, that sucks. Oh my God, that sucks. And it made him feel like it was okay to breathe a little, even if some words fell out when he did. But then she started telling him, you should. He knew she didn't mean it mean. He was a little younger than everybody. Man, that's why. But then she went and told. After she swore she wouldn't tell, and he guessed he'd never tell her anything again, much less everything, because she'd promised. Still, though, he thought he should go see her. He'd been walking down the road for over an hour and still had another hour at least when he saw the pickup jabbed over onto the side of the road. He could see it from a far way off, and when he got close enough, he recognized it. Tim walked up to it from the back. In the passenger door mirror, he could see Dan's head knocked back, his mouth open. When he got to the rolled-down window, he could hear him snoring. He held an empty beer can in his right hand, tilted on its side on the seat. Tim stood at the open window. He thought, this football asshole. He thought, thanks for nothing, heavy metal. He said, hey, and again, hey. Dan lifted his heavy head and looked at Tim, confused. It was quiet enough so Tim could hear the wind through the leaves of the trees on the side of the country road and the birds calling in mourning. Dan said, you again. Tim wanted to say, why did you do that for the other day? But he was scared to, and what did it matter even now anyway? He said, what are you doing? Dan sat forward. I'm going to work. What are you doing? Walking to England? <laughs> uh, that's beautiful, man. Uh, thank that's you really so nice. much. Yeah. Oh, Dan. Dan uh. is... Dan's funny. Tragic, but he's, boy, he's funny, too. Gosh, yeah. he's a funny guy. He is funny. It's uh, I think there's a lot of him. <laughs> there's a lot of Dan's yeah. out there. Uh, it seems to me like Dan, he cares. He cares more about other people than himself, I think. Well, he's not. He, yeah, yeah, he's not treating himself very well. But it's also like um, there's that there's a line there where it's. um. It's almost. He says. It says that he. Uh, Dan looked over with naked clown eyes, full of fear, like he was peering out from cracked grease paint. Of course, I'm okay. He said, "I'm fucking wicked." Okay, you know, like there's this <laughs> thing where he's almost like, who he's portraying himself as is not who he really is, and he's really struggling with who he is, and he's got this facade that uh, almost a caricature of who he's supposed to be that he's living. novel but have you imagined the screenplay yeah you know actually the, the thing is, is that it started out as a screenplay because i thought it would be easier and i thought I, I didn't think i could write a novel you know i didn't think i was capable of that at all i had no idea that i could but i just had the story in my head and i wanted to get it down and and so i wrote it as a screenplay and then you know there was like a the whole series of events following that but i had the story and then lockdown happened and I was just like, if you if you can't write a novel now with no work and nowhere to go and just locked in your house, like if you can't do it now, you don't have it in you. You know, and, they, and I just told myself, if I didn't do it now, I was just going to be like some, some bullshit little internet ghostwriter. And, right. I, and I didn't have it in me. And I really wasn't, um, I really wasn't prepared to deal with that. 
but it was really scary and i really felt like it was a do or die moment for me and that i you know i'd not done it for a really long time and it was time to just not be like that anymore so yeah that was a big thing and that's what you know there were so many tricks like i have so like whatever's wrong with my brain you know like i had to like <laughs> trick it into doing this so like i when i first started writing it i, I wrote it in in bold 14 point font because i wanted it to look like jesus son but it also like tricked me into thinking i had written like i can't quit now i've written 150 pages when it was probably like 12 or whatever. right so i really had to, I had to do a lot of tricks on myself in order to uh to write it though i never thought i could do it i never thought i could do it you want to hear a good story no i don't want to hear a good story nope Wh whoever wants to write a book <laughs> and you know, because you get like you get all sorts of writing advice. And I realized that the advice that um, the only advice I needed, I got when I was like 18 years old and I was on a landscaping crew in northwestern Connecticut and we were landscaping Philip Roth's house. And I was I was wow. like, yeah, I was pulling out weeds or whatever from his garden beds in this little side house that he was in. And I think he was writing. I mean, maybe I imagine it looking back that I could hear him typing or whatever. Right. And he came out and I was right there and like the couple other people on the crew were there and they're like, oh, this, fucking, this guy wants to be a writer. This guy wants to be a writer. Do you have any advice for him? And he looked right at me and I thought he was fucking with me. I thought he was kind of like dismissing me, but he seemed really sincere <laughs> when he gave me this advice. And I realize now that it's the only advice you need as a writer. He looked right at me and he said, apply ass to chair. Wow. And that's really what it's about. It's like, if you want to do this, you apply ass to chair. And, and when I did that, when you actually do it, you realize that's the only advice you need, really. Right. Natalie Goldberg has a writing exercise where you sit for 20 minutes and you keep your hand moving no matter what. Like, you don't stop mm -hmm. for any reason. A writing exercise is not necessarily the same thing as writing, but I, I just did it like that, where it's like, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to write a thousand words. And I did yeah. that every day. And usually I wrote actually much more. And that's how it came out. The editing process was a whole other thing. But in terms of getting it down, like I really, like I advise everybody, that's what you should do. Um, it's funny because I always say like writing a self-published book is like uh, running a marathon that ends at the start of another marathon. And you really have to run them both. Like you really, like, or th like maybe mm -hmm. it's a, like there's three marathons i'm not sure because there's there's writing the book and then there's publishing the book and then there's promoting or marketing the book and if you wanted there's no sense in doing the first part if you're not going to do the second part which is kind of how i reconcile myself to this part which is not you know not my favorite thing you know it'd be great to just be writing but yeah in terms of writing the book it was like i'm going to sit here and i'm going to write a thousand words and i'm going to do that and then the story just came out from your initial pen to paper to publication how did your view change of the of the novel did you know what you had when you were done that's such a um flattering question <laughs> you know I'm, like i really thank you for that um no i still don't really like i you, i didn't know it's really like being like like a late night radio DJ, like you wonder if anybody's listening or if you're talking mm -hmm. to you know I, I didn't quite know what it was or what I had. And then I started letting some people read it and just the emotional response they were having to it. Like once it came out, like people, I had a whole bunch of people tell me that they read it in one sitting. One person reviewed it and they said it was um, incredibly sad and totally uplifting. 
which is just <laughs> really like floored me. So when people started having this response to it emotionally, I was like, oh my gosh. And I kind of felt like I just tapped into something bigger. You know, there's so many resources when you're, when you're self-publishing that are just wonderful and great. And, and I kind of immerse myself in, but one of them is this podcast called the creative pen by this woman, Joanna Penn, who writes all these like how to's and talks about self-publishing. And, but this guy, Stephen Pressfield was on this podcast and he did this interview with her like quite recently, like maybe last month or two months ago. And he was talking about for people to really be moved emotionally by a story. It's usually because there's a spiritual transformation that takes place over the course of the story. And I was just like, oh my God, because that's certainly what happens with Tim, the main character. Sure. It's, a, it's a spiritual transformation and there's this whole like Buddhist element about um, transcendence and enlightenment um, that runs through the book that is very subtle, but maybe that's something that's powering it. So I kind of felt like I had sort of marshaled these forces that were a little bit bigger than me and it, and it became, you know, not really about me. And it, it was also like I was trying to, you know, maybe the Orwell thing, the political writing that Orwell talks about where I was trying to, you know, I was trying to call attention to something, especially during like the height of the pandemic, you know, and like all this stuff about essential workers and all that stuff. It's like, what are, what are the lives really like? Like these are actual people and like they get bandied about as like, you know, symbols of this or symbols of that or this, like all the discussion of the Trump era and everything. But I just really wanted to like look at people's lives with sort of compassion and dignity and talk about it a little bit. Well, I'm going to buy a copy every time I see one in a bookstore and give it to someone, like yeah. I do with Flowers or Romance by P.I.L. Ah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. If anybody wants to get it, it's uh, I'm selling it myself at doublenickelsbook.com. Um, and so if you want it, if you want a copy, you can get it from me and I'll sign it for you and I'll sign it to you and it's on Amazon. You can get it there and you can get it in any bookstore you want to buy it from can get it through Ingram. So it's all available. There's also, there's an Instagram for it at double nickels book, which kind of, that's been another kind of interesting way to sort of represent some of the themes that are in the book and to do right. it visually and stuff. That's been kind of like more of an interesting creative project than I thought it would be. But so there's, you can follow it at double nickels book on Instagram and there's links to get it through there. All right. All right. Is that it? That's going to be it. Except I have one more question for yeah, you. Ari. Yeah, yeah. I'll be here. All, I can stay here all day. <laughs> I'm a shut in. I can be here all day, man. What are you looking forward to in 2021? Mm. That's such a good question. It's an interesting question. I just want, um, God, just like re, uh, emerging into the world. You know, it's been such a, a strange year and I don't think we've really comprehended or processed what exactly happened in the past year. And I think maybe the year next year or two ahead is going to be about people like coming to terms with that, especially if you have kids or anything like that. Like I think some profound changes have happened. Um, I don't know, like what I'm looking forward, like, like a little, uh, a little less, a little more peace, a little less toxicity yeah. and, um, vitriol and nastiness in the world. It's, um, I was very conscious of it when I was writing the book. I, I felt very aware of the times we were in. And that's that, that amazing Nina, Nina Simone quote where it's like the duty of the artist is to reflect the times. And I, and even though the mm -hmm. book is set in the eighties, I was, I'm hoping to do that. And I hope there's, uh, you know, it's like people talk about like if there's a if there's a political aspect to the book and I was like, you know, these are these are people that could very much benefit from 
you know, Medicare for all and free higher education and some sort of social safety net, which is doesn't exist right. now. And it's, you know, it's a barbaric, ruthless society to live in. If you're struggling, I've experienced that myself. And, um, you know, I hope there's, I hope there's less struggling and suffering for working people in the year ahead. Well, as cliche as it is, I'm looking forward to spreading the word of rock and roll. And I think I might be doing that. Are you going Nashville out again? Oh, when are you coming? September. Oh, nice. I hope to see you this year. Maybe I'll Thank you. in person. That would be great. All right. Take it easy. Take it easy. Thank you for everything. Bye. Bye. A word war will set off the keg. My words are war. Should a word have two meanings? Fuck four. Should words serve the truth? For history, I am a cesspool for all the shit to run down in.